0: I don't know about you, but those words are, they ring very true for my life, and I know for your lives as well. Whether you know that or not, we all need the Lord. Um, We need him every hour, every day, every second. We need the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. This morning, we'll look at the first 10 verses. Um, Then we will partake of the Lord's Supper together. So at this time, we'll go ahead and read our passage. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off and look at the rest of the chapter. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. So Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his side and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you in the name of Christ, by the power of your Spirit. And I pray this morning that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. We are weak and frail. We are desperately needy, and we need you to deliver us. And Father, we come before you confessing that our hearts, they are prone to wander Therefore, we need you to keep us on the narrow path. And I pray the same for our brothers and sisters in Latin America. Think about Arturo and Christ the Redeemer in Santiago, Chile. We pray for the saints there. We pray as they transition from Arturo's preaching ministry to another man who will follow in his footsteps, but I pray that he would follow in Arturo's footsteps as Arturo followed in Christ's. I also pray for Jorge and Taylor as they labor in Santiago or Santo Domingo in, in Ecuador and as they labor there in Santo Domingo and all throughout Latin America. I pray specifically for Taylor so he'll be traveling to Cuba if he is not already. I Pray that you would use him there to encourage the brothers as he teaches. That the brothers that he encourages would be able to encourage the brothers and sisters in your churches. Throughout a land that has been, where the gospel has been stifled. Where you have not been worshipped by many, but I pray that your name would be praised and glorified. I pray also for Joe Owen and his ministry and the impact he's making all throughout Latin America. As you know, the the travels that he goes on regularly, and, and I pray also for Barry and Joe as they'll be in Bolivia. I pray for both of them. You would bless their endeavors. Speak through them, that you would be glorified among them. I'm grateful. I'm grateful, O God, that you have introduced us to these men. These men who are faithful laborers in the kingdom. Men whose labor often puts us to shame. Oh, I pray that you will stir us up to worship Stir us up to to desire to see others worshiping you. Give us hearts that long to see you, that long to see your face, and give us hearts that long to see others knowing you and delighting in you. And I pray this in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there were two brothers. One brother was on his way to a sheep shearing festival. This brother came to the city gates. He saw an adulterous woman and he went straight to her. He didn't hesitate. He simply gave in to the temptation that stood there right in front of him. Then the other brother, he was tempted every single day, day after day, by the adulterous woman, yet he resisted her daily advances. Day after day, she called out to him, yet he did not turn aside to her or stray into her paths. You probably guessed it, that this is Judah and Joseph. They both lived in foreign lands, yet their lives were markedly different. Last week, we looked at Genesis 38. There we saw Judah who went down from his brothers, became friends with the pagans of the land. He became comfortable with the pagans of the land and lived just like those who did not fear God. Joseph, on the other hand, was sold by his brothers, brought down to a foreign land, yet he feared God while living in this foreign land. He lived like a stranger like an exile resisting the temptation to become entangled by the wiles of this world. In one sense, Judah placed himself in these ungodly circumstances, while Joseph, on the other hand, could not escape his circumstances. Joseph was a slave. He could not remove himself from Potiphar's house. Therefore, he was not able to remove himself from the daily temptation that was coming from the adulterous woman. Yet as we'll see this week and next, Joseph will resist the temptress. He will not be compelled by her smooth talk. Neither will he be be persuaded by her seductive speech. He will not turn aside to her ways. And as we see in verse 20, his reward for such faithfulness will be prison. But it's not as bad as it seems. For as we see in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. While Joseph was forsaken, we could say he was forsaken by his brothers, forsaken by his master, thrown into prison, yet he was not forsaken by God. God was with him. And we'll see the same thing this morning, that the Lord was with him as he's brought down into slavery. As we look in at verses 1 through 10 here, what we're going to see is God's blessed presence with Joseph. That's a, that's a theme we see all throughout the Joseph narrative, is that the Lord was with him. So we're going to see the blessed presence of God with Joseph, and then we're going to see Joseph resisting temptation. Verses one through six, we're gonna be reminded that although Joseph Joseph was brought down to Egypt, God is with him, blessing him in all that he does, causing him to prosper, really causing his master to prosper. And then in verses seven through 10, we're gonna see Joseph resisting temptation because he fears the Lord. He is not like his brother Judah, he fears God. I mean, he's going to say, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So that's what we're going to see here. God's blessed presence with Joseph, and then Joseph's resistance of this daily temptation, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper together in which we will reflect upon Christ who overcame the temptation of the devil, as we read about earlier. So now that you know the plan, let's turn our attention to our text Um, Where we will pick up in verse 1 of chapter 39, which really connects us back to chapter 37, the last verse there. Um, In Genesis 37, 36, we see that Joseph was sold in Egypt to Potiphar. And that's the very same thing we see here in verse 1 of 39. Where we see 37, 36, telling us he was sold there. 38, digressing to the story of Judah and Tamar. And then now in 39, 1, we come back to Joseph being sold as a slave in Egypt. And at the beginning of the verse one, we read, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. So here we have his whereabouts. We see where he is. In chapter 37, if you recall, he was sent out by his father to go check on his brothers. He never came home. His father thought he was dead. His brothers sold him into slavery. And now we find that Joseph is in Egypt. And then we read, And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So we have his whereabouts, he's in Egypt, and now we have his status, he's a slave. He was sold to an Egyptian officer. He is a slave of Potiphar. So we have him in Egypt and as a slave of an Egyptian master. So the beloved son of Israel, The beloved son, Israel, Jacob, he loved Joseph more than his other brothers. The beloved son of Israel is now a slave in an Egyptian's house. And his Egyptian master, as we see here, is Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Potiphar is a man of status. He is not a man to be trifled with. Now, his status is helpful to note because when Joseph is thrown into prison, He's thrown into the place where the king's prisoners are thrown. Because this alleged offense was against Potiphar, Joseph will be thrown into the royal prison. And when we get there, when we see that, one thing we're reminded of, and we're reminded of this all throughout the Joseph narrative, is God's providence. We see God's providential hand at work. Now, God's providential hand is always at work, but there are times when God allows us to see his providential hand. And the life of Joseph highlights the providence of God as God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And his will is for Joseph to be be elevated in Egypt to save his brothers from sure starvation during a time of severe famine so that God might preserve the godly seed, the one who was promised to be born of The woman in Genesis 3, the one who would defeat the enemy of man, the one who was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, that would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. This promise being passed down to then Isaac and then to Jacob and subsequently to Judah. And through Joseph, God will preserve his promise of blessing. So God orchestrated all of this for his purposes. He does not violate Joseph's brother's will. Remember, they hated him. But yet he worked through their evil, and he will bring forth good. But not only was he at work through the brothers who sold Joseph, he was also at work through these slave traders who brought Joseph down and sold him to Potiphar. So just think about it. Joseph could have ended up in another house. He could have ended up in the house of someone less prominent. He could have been thrown into another prison and not been prisoned alongside Pharaoh's cupbearer, who will introduce Joseph eventually to Pharaoh, who will eventually elevate Joseph over his household. Joseph could have ended up elsewhere, but that was not the case. I say he could have, really we know that he couldn't have, because God's hand was directing him all the way. Therefore, we can say that Joseph is right where God would have him, even though he is currently a slave in Potiphar's house. So in verse one, we have Joseph's whereabouts. He's in Egypt. We have his status. He is Potiphar's slave. Now look at the beginning of verse two. The Lord was with Joseph. These words are captivating. Joseph is in a foreign land because his brothers sold him into slavery. But as we read here, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph. In all reality, it wouldn't matter if Joseph was a slave or a free man. The Lord was with him. I mean, how amazing this is. The blessed presence of the Lord is with Joseph as he is in Egypt. Several weeks ago, I mentioned the recurring covenantal theme in Scripture which is this, God's presence with his people. And this recurring theme is found all throughout the book of Genesis. God promised to be with Abraham and his offspring. He promised to be with Isaac and bless him. He promised to be with Jacob and bring him back to the promised land. And here we see that God is with Joseph. His circumstances are terrible. I don't think any of you are gonna say, sign me up for that, right? At least I wouldn't. But you would say, sign me up for the Lord's presence. His circumstances are terrible, but the Lord was with him. The one who created Joseph, the one who sustains Joseph is with Joseph. So therefore, he has no reason to be dismayed, to be dejected, because God is his refuge and strength. God is his very help on the day of trouble. And not only is God's blessed presence to be equated with his protection, but in his presence there is delight, there is joy. In Psalm 21.6, David says of God, you make me glad with the joy of your presence. So while Joseph is a slave in Egypt, there is great comfort and joy to be had because God is with him. And this is the promise that we too have in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is God, promises to be with his people. He tells his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. The wonderful promise, this is the wonderful promise of the gospel is that God is with us. He's not with us as our genie in the bottle or as our personal steward, or as our bodyguard, the wonderful promise of the gospel is that sinners get God. I mean, just listen to the promise of the new covenant that Christ established with his blood. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God promises to be the personal God of his people. And when we get to the end of the Bible, When we get to the book of Revelation, we see the end of the age. And what do we see there? We see God dwelling with his people. As we read in Revelation 21, 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the goal of redemption. Yes, we see in Revelation 21 that every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. But those things are not the ultimate goal of our redemption. The goal of our redemption is that we get God. The goal is not perfect health. The goal is not even the absence of sin. The goal is God. All these other things matter. Yes, but the goal is God. This is the gospel. The gospel is not merely that our sins are forgiven. Yes, our sins must be forgiven for sinners cannot dwell in the presence of the holy God. But the goal of the gospel is that we get God. The righteous will see God face to face. Well, who are the righteous? Who are the righteous ones who will see God face to face? Well, the righteous are those who are found in Christ Jesus. For Christ Jesus stood in our place. He took our sins upon himself, dying for our sins and then crediting us with his righteousness. And because we've been united to Christ, both in his death and in his resurrection, we will one day see God face to face. Now, if this doesn't excite you, then you either have not been awakened to the glory and beauty of God, or you've become distracted by the things of this world, things that will one day fade away. In a sermon that I have listened to on a number of occasions, John Piper asked a simple question that I'll ask of you. I'll repeat his words. If you could have heaven perfect health, all the friends you ever wanted, all the physical pleasures purified that you ever wanted, but God's not there. Would that be okay? If you answer yes to that question, then you don't love God. You love the things of this world and you are in fact an enemy of God. See, I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to know without a doubt that God is the goal of salvation. He saves us for himself. He gives us himself because he is love. His love is not merely what he has done for us. Yes, his love was displayed through the cross, but he lavishes his steadfast love upon us by giving us himself. The most perfect, most satisfying being in all the universe gives us the gift of himself. In Psalm 16, 11, we hear these words, in him there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's think about it, the most joyful being makes us partakers of his joy. That is John 17. If you read it, Jesus is saying, he's, he's praying that his disciples would know the joy that he has in the Father. And God gives us this joy in him. And as we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Why will they be satisfied? Because the righteous will get God and will be with him forever. So when we read Genesis 39, two, and we see that the Lord was with Joseph, when the Lord was with Joseph, let us be reminded of the great promise that God makes to us. The promise of his blessed presence, which will one day be in full. Yet today, we experience in part. And in this partial fulfillment of his blessed presence, we see God prospering Joseph in Potiphar's house. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph became a successful man. Verse three, we see at the end that God caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so this prosperity that we see here is not a promise for us to be made. It's not, a, it's not to be taken as a normative experience is what I want to say. Not something that we should expect to prosper in such a way. Yes, Joseph prospered. Actually, it was Potiphar who prospered in all reality there. But if we take this as a normative truth, that God will prosper us materially speaking, what do you make of Christ? What do you make of him who says foxes have holes, right? Birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What do you make of Christ who was rich, though for our sake became poor? What do you make of Paul who says that he knew what it was to be in need, to be in hunger? What do you make of these men? What do you make of our God and Savior who became poor for our sake? Therefore, we must be careful not to go beyond the Scriptures and apply Joseph's circumstances to us. Even though we can apply the blessed presence of God to us as members of the new covenant, we cannot necessarily apply the application of how God's blessed presence plays itself out in our circumstances but we can apply that God is with us. That is why we can be content in all things. That's why we should not be anxious because we can be content whether we have an abundance or whether we are in need. We can be content no matter what because we have God. But here, as we see in the case of Joseph, God was with Joseph. He became a successful man in verse two, as we see in the house of Potiphar. And then in verse three, his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Potiphar recognizes that he himself is prospering because the Lord was with Joseph. And what he does is he is going to elevate Joseph. In verse four, he is going to make him overseer of his house. Joseph finds favor in his sight And then Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And then verse five, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So God blessed Potiphar's house for Joseph's sake. And because this blessing came to Potiphar through Joseph. We see in verse six that Potiphar left all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Potiphar entrusted his household to Joseph. He had very little to be concerned with other than the food he ate because the Lord was blessing Joseph. And he knew that. And so he's able to sit back he's been able to take care of his other dealings things the other matters that he has and just entrust them to Joseph. So while we see God's blessed presence is with Joseph here in verses 1 through 6, we also have the setting for what is to come. The setting is this, Joseph is in Egypt. He's a slave. But the Lord blessed him. Now he's in charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar has little concern. The only concern we have is that we see here is the food he ate. One commentator said that Potiphar should have been more concerned about his wife's needs than about his stomach's needs. For as we'll see in the next section, Potiphar's wife is going to make daily advances toward Joseph. But first, let's look at the last sentence in verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So Joseph is in a position of authority within Potiphar's house, and now we learn he's handsome. So what? What's that matter? Why do we have that? Well, that's here because of verse 7. Because Potiphar's wife, verse 7, after a time his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph. She was attracted to Joseph. She was drawn to him and she attempted to seduce him. To seduce him, She's a temptress. She's a seductive woman and she's very direct with Joseph. There's no subtlety here. Verse seven, she says, lie with me. Yet as we read in verse eight, but he refused. He refused her advance. He did not give in to her temptation. He refused and said, Behold, look, verse 8, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Joseph is a respecter of persons. He will not sin against his master And neither will he violate that which God has joined together, namely the one flesh union between Potiphar and his wife. If you were at Christian and Abigail's wedding, you'll remember the wedding lasso. Uh, The wedding lasso was placed on the bride and the groom. As a picture of the one flesh union. Now, I invited the parents to come up and see that they couldn't fit into the lasso to that union. It's it's symbolic. It's a picture that here's the one flesh union. Nobody else fits. No one else is getting into that union, right? There's no room for anyone else. And Joseph here, he acknowledges that. He acknowledges the, she does not belong to him. This is, his master's wife. And we can also say, applied from this statement, adultery is a serious sin because it dishonors that which marriage points to, namely the union between Christ and his bride. Therefore, Potiphar's wife, she is attempting to tarnish her union to her husband, which signifies the union between Christ and the church. In a sense, this is attempted robbery. She's attempting to rob Christ of his glory that is seen in his union with his bride, the church. She is attempting to show that Christ is less valuable than temporary pleasure. I realize she's not a believer, but this is what every adulterous relationship does. It's an attempt to to rob Christ of his glory. Every adulterous relationship is an attempt to rob Christ of his glory and of his worth. Effectively, that is what every sin does. Because we know finite man cannot rob Christ of his glory. But when we sin, we're attempting to do so. For when we sin, we are saying that Christ is not worthy we're saying these short-sighted temporary pleasures are more satisfying they are more satisfying than the all-satisfying God who created the heavens and the earth yet gives us himself in Christ that's what we're saying when we sin we're saying that God is not worth it and that's what Potiphar's wife is saying In her unbelief. She is saying the things of this world are more delightful, are more glorious than the almighty creator of heaven and earth. As such, she seduces Joseph, tempts him to lie with her, yet Joseph resists her temptation. He will not dishonor his master and he will not tear apart that which God has joined together. And as we see here, Joseph was not only concerned about his relationship with his master and the integrity of the marriage bed, but he also understood that sin is against God. At the end of verse 9, he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is concerned for God's honor. He will not defy the living God and sin against him and we're reminded here that every sin is ultimately against God. When King David committed adultery and murder, Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin is ultimately against God even when we sin against others. That sin is still against God. And Joseph recognizes this. Therefore, he resists the adulterous woman because he fears God. How can I sin against God? This is a private sin in some ways, but he is not worried about the fact that this is private and might not be found out. He knows that God sees all. I will not sin against God. Sometimes we have more of a, like a better understanding, like this is public. I'm not going to do this in public, so we act a certain way in public. But in private, how do we act? In some ways, that's God's restraining grace, but in other ways, we are just as wicked because we care more about what others think of us than what God does. Joseph will not sin against God, whether this will be known or not to man. He will not sin against God because this is sin against God. He fears the Lord. And so when we see in verse 10 that day after day, she tempted him, saying, lie beside me, lie, lie with me, he would not listen to her. He would not listen. Remember, he could not remove himself from the temptation, because he was a slave in his master's house. He can't remove himself from this. Now, I guess, I suppose he could try, but it would probably result in his death. He can't remove himself from this. He is a slave but he would not give in because to give in would be to sin against God. Joseph is a model for us in our fight against temptation. For when we give the slightest inkling to sinful desire, we've already lost the battle. Therefore, as we learn from scripture, we are to flee immorality. We're to stand against the schemes of the devil We're not to entertain temptation even for a moment. In a sense, we're to be like Lot whenever he left Sodom. Don't look back. Think about his wife. She's going, oh, look back. We are not to look back. We're not to make any provision for the flesh. Because when we do, our flesh will take it all. If we give any ground in this war, the enemy will not be satisfied with a small victory. As John Owen says, you cannot bargain with fire to only take part of your house. All you can do is put the fire out if not prevented in its first attempts. Sin will prevail. And that's what Joseph does. He puts out the fire immediately. He would not listen to, To her. He makes no provision for the flesh. He does not entertain his master's wife's seduction, whose temptations here, his master's wife is tempting him day after day after day, and he wouldn't even listen. Narratives such as this are encouraging because we are reminded that righteousness does prevail. That escape is possible, even in our frailty and weakness. But this escape does not be, not come because of anything within us. We only overcome because Christ overcame. Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors in Christ. We don't overcome because we're strong. We don't overcome because we stand above temptation. We overcome in Christ who overcame the temptation of the devil. Whereas Joseph withstood the temptation of the adulterous woman, Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil. If you recall back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they did not overcome the temptation of the devil. And being born in the offspring from the offspring of Adam and Eve, it's safe to say that Joseph would not overcome the full throttle assault of the devil either. But Christ Jesus did. Luke 4 that we read earlier. He overcame the devil. He overcame the temptations of the flesh. And now we who are feeble and frail, we overcome in Christ. But for those of who are here, those of you who are here who are not overcomers, for those of you who are constantly giving in to every temptation, you need to examine whether you are in Christ. For in Christ, we do overcome. We're more than conquerors in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we will not fall into temptation, that we will not sin, we will. And when we do, we must be quick to repent lest we presume upon God's grace. But what I am saying is that we must be vigilant in this fight against sin. And we must exercise the means God has given us to overcome the temptations of the flesh. For the Christian does not love his sin. We will not be saved because we overcome temptation. We we are saved in Christ, but Christians, those who are saved, who are justified in Christ, we do not love sin. In fact, we loathe it, we hate it. Why? Why? Because it's sin against God. It's great wickedness. It's sin against God. It leads to death. Besides, as Paul reminds us, we have died to sin. How can we still live in it? But many of us do struggle. Many of us struggle with temptation. Some of us seemingly always are overcome. So what do we do? How do we fight? I want to fight. I don't want to keep giving in. What do I do? How do I fight this battle? How do I overcome temptation? Well, simply put, we make use of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in this fight. The means such as the word Prayer, corporate worship. That's what we do. We're still frail. We're weak, but we trust in Christ through these means, through the word, through prayer, through corporate worship. Because when we come together and worship God, I mean, that what we are doing in our worship services is we are, I pray and hope that through the word, through prayer, through our song, as our eyes are being taken off the world and looking to Christ, seeing him in all his glory. So God has given us these ordinary means. He hasn't given us other means. He's given us these means. And while it'd be profitable to spend our time discussing all of these, I want to address two disciplines related to the word of God. Namely, storing God's word in our heart and meditating upon Christ and his glory. So as we consider the importance of storing God's word in our heart. Just think about the example of Christ. When he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Every time the devil tempted him, how did he respond? He responded with the word. Every single time he quotes scripture. I mean, just think about that. Temptations thrown his way and the word of God responds with the word of God. Jesus Christ is the word. He is the word of God and he responds with the word of God every single time. And it's not as though he pulled out his Bible. He didn't say, you know what? I need to look up this verse real quick or even pulled out his phone because we can get there quicker. The word was clearly in his heart. It was in him. He knew it. Don't forget, don't minimize the humanity of Christ. He spent time laboring in the word. He knew the word, it was in him. So we learn from Jesus that one of the primary means for resisting temptation is by hiding God's word in our heart. Isn't that what we learn from Psalm 119.11? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So one of the primary means for resisting temptation is by hiding God's word in our heart. And we hide God's word in our heart by memorizing the word and by meditating upon the word. It's difficult to meditate upon the scripture if we don't first memorize it, if we don't know the scriptures. So we make it our aim to memorize the scripture. And as we do, we meditate upon it. We turn it over and over in our minds. Just think, slow cooking, marination. Think that way, it's the slow cook, it's the marinade. It's not a speedy process. We hide God's word in our hearts. We treasure God's word in our hearts. Why? That we might not sin against God. So one of the means available to us in this war against the temptations of the flesh is to hide God's word in our heart. To meditate upon God's word, to turn it over and over in our minds, in our hearts, that we might be ready when temptation comes. As Don Whitney notes, each time the enemy thrust a temptation at Jesus, he parried it with the sword of the Spirit. It was the Spirit-prompted recollection of specific texts of Scripture that helped Jesus experience victory. One of the ways we can experience spiritual victories is to do as Jesus did, memorize scripture so that it's available within us for the Holy Spirit to bring to our remembrance when it's needed. Another means available to us in this war against temptation is to meditate upon Christ and his glory. How do we do this? We do this through the scriptures. Through the word, we meditate, we consider Christ Jesus our Lord. We consider his infinite worth, his infinite beauty. And as we do this, in the words of Marshall Siegel, he's the managing editor at Desiring God, he says, as we do this, sin becomes more and more offensive, even disgusting, as God becomes more beautiful, more precious, more satisfying. He goes on to say, adultery loses its seductive power because its pleasures pale next to the deep and enduring joy he promises. Joseph talks about how devastating this affair would be to Potiphar, who, had, who has trusted him with everything. But he ends by asking, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? David says the same when he confesses to God about his adultery against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Potiphar's trust, as Siegel says, was precious to Joseph, but God was more precious. You see, don't wait till temptation comes. Be ready. Take advantage of seasons when you have calmness, when the waters are calm, when the seas are calm. Don't waste times of peace and calm. Use these times, use those times to prepare, to be ready because temptation is surely coming your way. The question is not if, the question is when, because temptation will come. And when it does, and when you cave in to temptation, it's because you've forgotten the infinite worth of knowing God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, I call you to continually meditate upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Draw from the well of salvation. Continually set the gospel before yourself and before your family. Don't think you can resist in your own power. For Siegel writes, if you're just saying no because you know it's wrong, you may soon run out of gas in your war against sin. You see, our strength does not lie in our flesh. Our strength is Jesus Christ, who resisted the schemes of the devil. Whereas you and I do not have the strength to prevail, Jesus Christ overcame the temptations of sin, the flesh, and the devil. Therefore, he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. On him, our sins were laid. And our sins have been removed in him. But not only does he take our sin away, but he credits us with his righteousness. In him, we're considered righteous. His obedience becomes our obedience. But this all comes through faith. Not through anything we do. It doesn't come through human ability. The gift of righteousness comes through faith in Christ. We're not saved by overcoming temptation. We're saved by Jesus Christ. And in Him we overcome. But if you are a stranger to these promises this morning, I implore you to come to Christ today. For all who come to Him. For all who come to Him by faith. He will not turn you away. He won't say, you know what? You did this over here. I'm going to turn you away. Or, "Eh, no, I'm going to take him or her, not you. No, all who come to him, he will by no means turn you away. He knows your pain. He knows your weakness. He knows your toil. He knows your temptation. Yet he overcame it all. So look to him and you will be saved and you'll find that there is none like.